Well, shoot. Live and don't learn. Live and just do it again (laughs) next time, really. It's my Uh, motto. Welcome to Book Talk Etc., a podcast bound to grow your TBR. I'm Tina. And I'm Renee. And this is a conversational podcast about books and more from two Midwest mood readers who are easily distracted by new releases. And today, we're talking about debut novels. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love for you to follow us on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a minute, please consider leaving us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or sharing us on social media. All of this truly helps other book lovers find us. Hi, Renee. How are you? I am good. I'm very excited to talk about debuts. And we both said we can't believe we haven't talked about debuts up until this point. Even though we bring a lot of debuts to the show, we haven't devoted a whole show to debuts. I know. And we, I, this must have been on our list since the beginning. But finally, mm-hmm. I'm like, wait, I, we haven't done this yet. So I'm happy to to bring some. I, whenever we can, I think we both like to find a debut yes. author. And when we're in book talk, we'll talk a little bit more about like why that is. Like, why do we like debuts? What makes them so special? Um, I have three books today that I'm very excited to tell y'all about. I have a lot to say about all of them. So <laughs> buckle up. It's going to be right. actually, I, I shouldn't say that. You know how when you, one of the books I just had to really sit with and I'm like, what do I think of this? I still don't know if I have a rating. So I'm going to need a few more people to read it and, and help me process what I read. But otherwise, they're good. And we don't share our books. So I am, I have a particular book that I thought you might be reading. And Mm -hmm. I am really hoping that is one of your books for today. I really want to, I hope it is because I'm dying to know about, I'm dying to know about it. All right. Well, we'll have to find out. (laughs) We're in a weird mood. I'm in a weird mood. I'm making faces to Renee as we're recording. I don't know why. We're recording later than we normally do. So like maybe we've had time to like let our morning coffee kick in. Oh, it's, oh, it's Although I still have like, I still have half of a, by the way, I'm going to bring this quick to the show. Sidebar, tragic news in the world of uh, iced coffee. I love my Trader Joe's crystals, the cold brew that they have. It's like instant cold brew coffee. I've been buying it for years now, and they've discontinued it in my area. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I literally used my last crystals today, and I went there yesterday, gone. And I'm bringing this to the show twofold. It was a loving lately that I brought probably to like one of the first episodes because I love this stuff. Secondly, if anybody has any iced coffee recommendations, send them to me. This is Tina. I want to know how you make your iced coffee at home because I can't be living on Dunkin'. I can't be running on Dunkin' every day. I'll be poor. <laughs> but anyway, I will, that was my breaking news. I will news. check our Trader Joe's for you when I go, oh probably God. this week, because if I keep go, buying up those cashew crackers with yes. seeds on them. The, I, I bought like six bags the last time I was there and they were like, boy, you really like these. I'm like, yeah, well, I have to buy a lot because you guys, like, I'll come <laughs> back and then they'll be gone. That's how Forever. Trader Joe's works. It is. So if, oh my gosh, great idea. If you would look for my yes, I will. little canister, I'll send you a picture and I will take a box. <laughs> I will pay you. <laughs> I'll pay shipping. Anywho, that was a okay, really good. odd sidebar. Sorry about that. I was just, it was top of mind. I'll tell you about my loving lately if you want to transition. This is one I'm very, very surprised that you never got into because my loving lately has been you on Netflix. And I realized I watched seasons one and two and season four just came out, I think this week. And I had never watched season three. I'm like, wait a minute, what happened? I just have lost the plot apparently. So in the last like week and a half or so, I caught up on season three and watched the first half of season four. There are five episodes that are out now, and the rest of it comes out on March 9th. Am I loving it? I enjoy it. I like watching the program. It's entertaining, but boy, is it over the top. It is popcorn thriller reading in television form. Mm. I just keep going, again? Seriously? Like, what the heck? But I really like Penn Bagley, the lead actor that plays Joe Goldberg, so I like watching him. And for me... You, the television show, and the books are different. They're not the same at all. Like, first 
season one and two kind of follow the You Book series closely, but then from there diverges, from what I know. So I've been entertained. This one takes place in a different country. It's in the UK somewhere. So that was a nice change to see Joe put in this brand new setting, to see him, you know, maybe get up to some old shenanigans. I've enjoyed it. I'm just wondering, I'm like, ooh, is this going to go on forever? Like, I'm curious to see how they're going to wrap up the entire series, if they are, if they know yet. But yeah, if anyone else has watched it, would love to hear what you think about it. I have not read book four in the You Book series because that doesn't come out until April 25th. Um, and that's called For You and Only You. And I know we're both waiting on to get the audio, the audio. for that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think it's a f- interesting show. He has this quirk where he's spying on people. He just puts on a baseball cap and like thinks he's invisible. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> Especially in England, like no one wears baseball hats from what I understand or that they're not as popular. And so I'm like, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Like you look very American <laughs> with that baseball hat on. But I digress. It's It's entertaining. And this was the TV series You on Netflix. I have not tried that. The only reason, because that's not how I picture Joe Goldberg in yeah. my head. Mm-hmm. I know. And that's I remember the only you said reason. That before. Yeah. Penn is so handsome to me. Like, he's just a very, he looks, his face is just so noteworthy that I'm like, you could never blend in. Like, you're too conventionally attractive to be this, like, oh, I'm going to blend in and, like, you know, killer in plain sight type of mm-hmm. person. But I like the actor because I used to watch Gossip Girl back in the day and he was on Gossip Girl. So like mm-hmm. I have an affinity for just him. You know, it's like nostalgic almost. But I do see what you mean. He doesn't give Joe Goldberg as I imagined. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to bring as my loving lately a podcast, but specifically a podcast episode, two episodes actually. And it's the We Can Do Hard Things podcast with Glennon Doyle. And this week, I listened to episode 178. It's actually from her Friday, February 10th episode, and it's called Five Criticism Survival Strategies. And I really think anyone and everyone could benefit from listening to this. I love what she had to say. She shares her quote-unquote sort your mail rules for dealing with the inevitable criticisms that people will receive when they dare to say anything, do anything, or be anything, Mm -hmm. which is kind of all of us, right? I just loved it. You know how you listen to something or you read something or you hear something and like a light bulb goes off inside your head and you're like, Mm -hmm. that how, okay, that's just going to completely change the way I think about this particular thing. That's how I felt listening to this. I loved it. And I mean, at some point or another, unless we all live under a rock, we're going to experience criticism. So I think it is beneficial. And I find her really engaging and pretty, I I think she's an authentic person. So I really like that. I also really like episode 180, which I'm not finished listening to yet, but it's The Secret to Making and Keeping Friends with Dr. Marissa Franco. And she wrote the book Platonic how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends, which I have downloaded the audio of. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm really liking that. I'm going to finish that episode soon. So that is We Can Do Hard Things, the podcast with Glennon Doyle. I love that. So she, Glennon Doyle is the host for all of the episodes and then she interviews guests. Okay. Yeah. And and her wife, Abby, is Mm -hmm. usually on... Now, I haven't listened to every single episode, so I can't tell you if Abby has always been on. Abby is in the episode about criticism survival strategies, along with Glennon's sister, Amanda. Oh, wow. A lot of times, almost everyone, every episode that I've listened to, Amanda is also there too. So the three of them have really great conversations. And I have a feeling, I don't know much about Amanda, but I have a feeling she might be from the corporate world. I think she might be a lawyer. And she brought a very different take on criticism in the corporate world and experience, like, especially as a woman receiving it and giving it. So it was, mm. I feel like it was a well-rounded conversation, but I really, really am taking what Glennon shared as her strategies, I want, I'm taking that into like my brain and yeah. I want to use it. <laughs> I think it's a great strategy. And like you said, in, in, I kind of like how you phrase that. If you have an opinion, basically, you're going to get probably criticism for it. 
And you can dwell on that. You can take it in. And when should you make a change? When should you just let it pass over Mm -hmm. you? So yeah, I'm going to definitely download that episode for sure. Okay. So, all right. Bye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Well, anyway. So so have you been reading anything? I mean. No, I don't read as much. You know, I just. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was laughing because um, Renee had a, we had a, a, just like a recording break in terms of our normal recording cadence. So it wound up where we had a few extra days to read and I was floundering. I'm like, I can't handle it. I need a schedule. I need to keep on our Mm -hmm. reading pace for the podcast because I just could not find a book to land on. Like, I just think I do a better job when I know, okay, we're recording this day. I have this many days to read. It just, ah, it just helps me decide what I'm going to read. But let me tell you about what I have been reading lately. And this is going to be a long uh, conversation. So buckle up. Okay. My latest read is I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. This one comes out on February 21st. So the same day that our this podcast is airing. This is a literary mystery. Emphasis on literary. Set in a boarding school. And a woman basically goes back to teach and becomes obsessed with a murder that took place while she was a student there. Bodie Kane is content to forget her past. She's now a successful film producer and podcaster. She had to go through a lot to get there. A family tragedy caused her to get sent from her home in Indiana to this New Hampshire boarding school where she spent four kind of miserable years. And these are high school years, not college. She was an outsider. She was not wealthy like her peers. And she assessed herself as kind of awkward. And definitely there was some bullying going on. And then in the spring of their senior year, her beautiful and popular roommate, Thalia Keith, got murdered. And the circumstances surrounding Thalia's death were murky. And it led to the conviction of the school's athletic trainer, Omar Evans. And Omar was on one of the only Black men in town. And the evidence against him was flimsy at best, and there was always speculation online about his guilt. And the book kind of opens up with the Granby School inviting Bodhi back to teach a course. She accepts and again is drawn into this world of the boarding school and spending some of her formative years there. And she really gets back into the case and looks into some of its flaws. In their rush to convict Omar, she's wondering, gosh, do they have all the information? Is there still a real killer out there who's been walking free for the past 25 years? And then she starts to reevaluate her role in what got Omar convicted. Now, I read this a couple weeks ago, and I'm still working out my thoughts. This was one of my most highly anticipated books for the year. I loved Rebecca Mackay's last book, The Great Believers. And while the writing is the same, it's lovely, engaging, and a bit meandering, this is a very different reading experience than I had with The Great Believers. Partially, it's due to the book's structure. The book is broken up into two parts and throughout plays a little bit with the past and the present. Done pretty well. I wasn't confused. I, I, you know, I can follow what's going on. Bodhi thinks Omar was wrongfully accused and spends the novel narrating her story to the person she thinks is really responsible. So she'll say things like, and I wonder if you were there that night. I wonder if you did this. Mm-hmm. Not in a annoying way, but it would take me out of it a minute. I'm like, oh, who are we talking to? And I could not figure <laughs> out who she thought for like the first 10%. I'm like, who are you talking to? And I think that was by design. I also listened to this fully. It was narrated mostly by Julia Whalen. And I think if I had an imprint, I would have like caught on a little bit faster. I'm being vague on purpose just because I think it's a a part of the fun to figure out who she's talking to. But I did want to mention that. What I liked, the setup was my catnip. Wrongful conviction. Something bad happened as kids and they come together as adults for a reckoning. It's a campus novel. And again, the narration was fantastic. It's mostly by Julia Whalen. And Rebecca Mackay does this great thing where She starts some of the sections with cataloging well-known crimes against girls and women, just short snippets. And what's amazing is you know what she's talking about. So for example, she'd be like, oh, you know, the one where the murderer was caught because of his wife's Fitbit. And like, if you're a true crime person, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, that's, well, we share that on Criminally Booked, but Mm -hmm. you know right away who she's talking about. Um, So I loved that. I loved the commentary on true crime and like a little bit of the fascination that 
people have. I loved the juxtaposition between Gen X and Gen Z because you're she's a very late Gen Xer, almost millennial when she's in boarding school, but the kids she's teaching now are Gen Z. So she had some I thought she just characterized these groups of people so well, did a really good job on format kind of uh, presenting each generation and how they handled identity and bullying. Let me just say Gen Z gives me hope because they are a lot more tolerant than even when I was in high school. Like it feels like, you know, they are more open and understanding. Now, you might think like, it sounds like I loved it. And I didn't not love it. I did not love it. I don't know. Um, Here's what gives me pause. And I had a hard time figuring out. I'm like, something was like in the back of my mind, like I was waiting for something and I couldn't figure out what until I was reading an interview that the author gave. And I'll quote her. If I were going to level a criticism at my own book, one that I really couldn't write my way out of, it would be that the book itself is marginalizing this guy's experience because it's not about him. And that was it. Omar has a very, very, very tiny, tiny part in the novel yet he is the one that's wrongfully convicted. And so it's more about everybody else who played a role in his conviction. That's not a bad thing. It just made me feel squishy. (laughs) It was like, I just feel a little odd about it. Definitely uh, Rebecca McKay does address race and wrongful convictions and how whiteness and privilege work almost as a protection sometimes in the criminal justice system. But I still was like, ah, I just wanted... I guess I just felt for Omar, not knowing whether or not he did it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But either way, I was like, it was just something that was in my head. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I also never really emotionally connected with any of the characters, especially Bodhi. And for me, if I'm going to love a book, that's something that I need. Um, This book was heavy on characters. There were a lot of them, heavy on plot. And it tried to take on a lot to varying degrees of effectiveness, in my opinion, Particularly, there's a section with Me Too that I thought she scratched the surface on, but I was like, you didn't really fully go there or make any sort of new revelation. Mm -hmm. All of this to say, if you like crime, campus, and courtroom novels, you might like this. As long as you're prepared to spend some time with it, it's not a fast read, in my opinion. It's also rather long. I think it's like 400, I don't know, 40 pages or so. I think this could make a good book club book, and I would love to chat with people who have read this because I think there is a lot to unpack. But those are my thoughts on one of my most highly anticipated book of the year. I have some questions for you by Rebecca Mackay. Oh, wow. Okay, great review. <gasps> do you think yeah, do you think you were meant to connect with Bodie? Is it Bodie? Bodie. Yeah, you just said. Do you think you were meant to connect with her and you just didn't? No, I don't know. Um okay. <laughs> I think some people did. I think she's definitely a morally, I don't know if it's morally gray, but she's a (sighs) complicated character for sure. And I like Mm -hmm. that. I really, really do like that. I just was a little bit removed from the entire reading experience. And that's not a bad thing. For me, though, if it's five-star loved it, slam dunk, I need to be surprised. I need to like really learn something new. And I need to like have a character that I'm really rooting for. Not always all three in one book, but like those are some of the things that I personally look for. I didn't quite get that from this book, but okay, all right, that's fair. Okay, well, my latest read is is one that you have recently heard me talk about on our February books on the radar, and it is The Last Orphan by Greg Hurwitz. Yay, yay! I I had to get to this, and it is book eight in his Orphan X series. I did the audio, Scott Brick narrates and he is great and there's a fun interview in the audiobook with the author at the end where he talks about how Scott Brick came to narrate and basically the author picked him like he was there he was there before F- Orphan X was even there which is so interesting so this was about Evan Smoke he's the main character he's the main character throughout all of the books and if you remember me saying Evan was initially raised in an orphanage, but he was pulled out and then trained as an off-the-books assassin for the government. And it was a program called the Orphan Program. So eventually, he broke with the program when he was an adult, 
much later in his life, and he went deep underground where he spends his time kind of living his best life, but also only helping people who he deems in desperate need of his help. And the way they find him is by calling a very special number that goes directly to his phone that he calls a Rome zone. This series is excellent. This particular book is about the fact that Evan makes a very, very tiny mistake. And he doesn't ever make mistakes. He really, he, he's very precise in what he does. He makes a mistake and something happens and he gets taken in by the president of the United States. Now, she has a deal for him because initially he had some issues with the government and that was kind of murky. The president has a deal for, for him. She will let him live if he assassinates someone that she wants assassinated. Okay. And that is how the story goes. The opening scene is really good. Real, it will pull you in. And that's this is a straight action thriller from start to finish. It will pull you in. I know that the question may be, can, can I start with book eight? Should I start with book eight? This one is tough. I know when I, with book seven, I do think you could jump in there. And in this one, I paid really close attention to, to see how the author would give details that would tell someone who's brand new to the series about Evan. And I think he does a really great job of doing it. He has certain specific ways of getting in backstory that you don't really realize he's telling you about Evan and some people that were in Evan's life before. Will you miss some things? Yes. But this is brilliant storytelling. And this goes for just about all of the books. Some are better than others. And in this one, what I found was he can tell a story no matter what. You will get a great story. There is intricate details as far as weapons and spycraft, which is absolutely fascinating. This author does so much research into spycraft I loved how he used the certain scenes to revisit the past and gives us glimpses into Evan's childhood with certain key figures. That was great. And for this reason, I think if you're a reader who doesn't need to know the who, what, where, when, or why of a main character, if you don't need to know all of that, then you can pick this book up and you would be fine. And I bet you would even decide to perhaps go back and start at the beginning, or you could even do that. And so I'm going to stand by that. In this story, there's also a bit of star-crossed love. There's some supporting characters who really spark sparkle. There is a cameo from a past orphan, and that was gold. Oh, it was pure gold. So I really, really like that. I, I really like this. My main issue was I didn't find the person that he was supposed to be going after, all that intriguing, all that interesting, for lack of a better word. But I will follow Evan wherever he goes. If you had to, if I had to pick between this book and Dark Horse, which ended up making my top 10 of 2022, Dark Horse is still my absolute favorite book, but you cannot go wrong with this series. I wish more people would give this thriller series a try, especially if you are in the mood for excellent characterization and a book filled with thrills. I'm going to also leave you with, if you're a moviegoer and you like the movies, Mission Impossible, James Bond, the Bourne Identity movies, you will like this book. If you toss in a little bit of the Deadpool movies, you will absolutely understand what I'm saying. That is the Orphan X series. So this book is The Last Orphan by Greg Hurwitz. Good job on that. Yeah, I appreciate that you reviewed the book, but also offered information for folks that are like, can I jump in at book eight? Like, should I? Um, I know. It's hard because who wants to necessarily jump in at book eight? But I do think it's possible. And, mm -hmm. and also, you could do that get a taste of it and if you think oh my gosh i really like this it doesn't you know it doesn't spoil 
the rest, like mm. the previous series. That's yes. what he does so well. He doesn't oh, spoil good. other books. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And I, that has to be an art. That really has to be an art because you know how sometimes in like subsequent books, you find out something and you're like, oh, shoot. But I didn't, <laughs> yeah. Now I can't go back oh, and read the others. that character's dead? Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've, <laughs> I've, I've been there before. Good. Okay. Wow. Well, that is certainly not his debut. That is, no. <laughs> he is a seasoned author. <laughs> but today we're talking about debuts. And I don't know, we wanted to really dig in. Um, we both read a fair amount of debuts. Do you happen to know like how many you read or how many you read last year? Oh, I didn't get that number. But four debuts made my top 10. Oh, I do know that. Nice. Four, okay. Yes. Yeah. I read um, six, I read 24 debuts uh, last year, which I was like, that's a lot of debuts. And some of them were 2022 new authors and some of them were just debuts from, you know, years prior. I feel like I have that data somewhere. And I wonder if I had that on our end of the year. Maybe I did mention it. Now that you said your number, I think I want to say mine was like somewhere around 20 to 22. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right to me. Yeah. Do you find yourself seeking them out on purpose? Not on purpose. But when I find one, especially on NetGalley, I get, when I say the word debut, I get very excited. Mm-hmm. And now, and since we're talking about it, and I'm putting like thoughts to that, why do I, what is it about? debuts that make that just seeing that word makes me excited and i do think it's it's because of the potential the possibility of a new story of a of an author who i and a story i don't know anything about and what if it's amazing mm-hmm. i don't know not that a not that an author we already know wouldn't be amazing but i feel like when you've already read an author or know of an author you can either have some preconceived notions of, oh, I don't know if, I don't know if that author's writing style is for me. But with the debut, we don't know anything, and it's kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is exciting, and I know sometimes too. Obviously, publishers have bought in and they've tuned into this. They know that readers like a good debut. Sometimes they get really, really hyped, and like you'll, if especially if I hear a book got a super big advance or like had a lot of, you know, a lot of bidding wars to get it published. I'll be like, okay, what's this story about? I got to know. I'm curious, right? Oh, for sure. And I'm wondering too, do you find that you review debuts differently than you might any other fiction books or nonfiction books? I don't think so. I think, I think often I forget once I, if it's a story that I really am into, I will, Mm -hmm. I will tend to forget it's a debut until Mm -hmm. I go back. But, and even if I go back and check it, you know, I don't think it changes my reviews as far as being like easier or or mm. harder on debuts. I don't I don't think so. Do you? I think I'm easier. I think I have a little bit more leeway. And the book that I'm thinking in particular is Age of Vice by Deep D. Kapoor. Because okay. I book book of the month had it listed as a debut. And I realized that it was not her debut. And I remember when I was reading, I thought, okay, there's a lot of elements I really like here. There's also some elements I'm like, mm, I'm not sure about this, but I bet in future novels, this type of issue will get fixed. And Mm -hmm. I I feel like I give debut authors just a little bit more leeway. I'll still review it the same. Maybe that was like the wrong way to ask the question, but I, in my head, I know it, I, I have it that, oh, this is a debut. And sometimes too, when I know it's a debut and it's going so well, I'm like, oh, wow, wow, this is a debut. Wow. Like how impressive. Like I get excited. I'm like, oh, I hope they can stick the landing, you know? Um, so I always kind of have that little in the back of my head that it is, you know, their first novel. Yes, now I should say true. probably not their first novel they wrote, but the first that's been published. Right. Because I did find, uh, in the research that for every debut author has on average two to three books that they have written before the one that gets published, mm. which that's interesting. That is interesting. And maybe with the Deep Tea Kapoor, it was, this is her first like U.S. debut and maybe the previous novels were published, you know, in India or elsewhere. And now they're being brought to the U.S. Because I know S.A. Cosby too, My Darkest Prayer, that just got a re-release because it was published, but he didn't get a ton of notoriety until his subsequent books. And then they republished it. So I wonder, maybe that happens sometimes too, if their first one was not as popular, you know, if they if they have a really big smash hit 
later on in their career. That's true. That's very, that that kind of makes sense. I think it wasn't her debuts, but Laura Dave, some of her mm. past books had had gotten a little bit of an editing refresh yeah. and then repo and then a republication, which I think those that I think that ended up working out really well. I'm thinking of the divorce party in particular, which I really loved. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be fun though, if a lot of debut authors ended up like giving their their at least one or one book that they had in a drawer. And maybe, <laughs> you know, after especially after they've published and maybe they they're super popular or their book, you know, blew up or whatever. Yeah. And then that would be, everyone should get a chance to kind of bring out that that first or second yeah. book that's hidden in the drawer. I think that would yeah. be great. I remember Stephen King said that his book, Pet Cemetery, was hidden in a drawer. And he had it there because he thought it was too scary. Like, and it's my scariest it's Stephen so King scary. to me. <laughs> and I remember, I think he said his wife, Tabby, read it and was like, no, 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 this needs to come out. Like, we need to get this to the people because it's Can that good. Can you imagine if that one would have stayed in the drawer? That could you? I wonder. Book. I wonder what, could you imagine how much stuff he has hidden? No, he probably has nothing. Oh. It all goes in his book. <laughs> his books yeah. are like 700 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> he he probably, ha- he probably does have more mm-hmm. hidden away, but we can only hope. <clears throat> what? Okay. This is interesting. And I won't mention all of them. And I, I, but I will put them in the show notes. If anyone is interested in some of the literary awards just for debuts, I wasn't really aware of a lot of them. The one I did know about, actually, the two I knew about were the International Thriller Writers. They have a an award for best first novel, and their 2022 winner was My Sweet Girl by Amanda Jayatissa. Did you read that one? No, I read her other, her her second book. Okay, gotcha. All right. And then the Edgar Awards. I think a lot of us know about the Edgar Awards, which that is for the best mystery, nonfiction, and television. And they have a best first novel by an American author. And their 2022 winner was Deer Season by Erin Flanagan. So I will go ahead and put some of the other awards in the show notes in case you're interested. But that's that's a these are great resources if you are specifically seeking out debut books. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even know they existed until I saw them in the show notes. I'm like, wait a minute. I love debuts. This is a good way because sometimes it's hard to find a lot of them. You know, you mm-hmm. can find individual ones like, oh, this is, you know, you can just Google what is this author's debut novel, but this is a good way to get a whole bunch that are probably pretty good if they're getting nominated. Right. And and the the Center for Fiction, they have on their website, which don't worry, I'll link to it, they have all of the debut nominees, which is a very long list for their first novel prize. So you get you not you get not only the winner, but you get all the books that were nominated. So that's mm-hmm. a fun way to find a lot of debuts. That is a good way. And I thought this was interesting too, that it's a not a conundrum for publishers, but it's debuts are interesting for publishers because they don't have a track record yet. The authors don't, so they're not, you know, I feel like they have to almost maybe be a little creative in a way, and I think that's where a lot of the comps come in for fans of this, right? Yes, um, They have right. to, like, try and figure out, like, all right, how well is this going to perform? And I feel like as reviewers, we probably get, you know, we hear more about debuts because they're hoping that, like, it'll catch on in in the social media space and, of course, with every reader. And But then, on the other hand, too, unless they're picked up by a celebrity book club, by a podcast or social media, whatever, debuts can be hard to sell because people might be afraid to take a chance on a new writer they've never heard of, especially to purchase it. They might be like, I don't know. Let's see what, let's see what people are saying. And booksellers will tell you, unless it has great advanced buzz, a debut novel in hardcover generally doesn't fly off the shelves. And I'm quoting this article that we'll link mm-hmm. to. But I thought, yeah, I could see that happening unless it's a Reese pick or, you know, a Jenna pick or something to that effect. I can I can understand it. I didn't think about that. And mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense. I feel like in the book world, a lot of us tend to get very excited about debuts. So I kind of assumed everyone got excited about debuts, but <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I know. I know. They're probably like, okay, like if it's a good book, it's a good book. Like who cares? I think it's us like, you know, 
book nerds. <laughs> us book nerds that get really, really excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It, and, and of course, I wanted to say a little something about, I like this phrasing that, that I found, literary one-hit wonders. Mm-hmm. That's the best. And I, well, really, truly, immediately one came to mind for me, and that was The Help by Catherine Stockett, which... Oh, I didn't realize that was it. For, Dave, I, if, yeah, yeah, I didn't know that was it. her one-hit mm-hmm. wonder. And you listed a couple others here. I knew To Kill a Mockingbird for years and years mm-hmm. and years, that was it. And then they came out with Go Set a Watchman, and I think people would have could have done without, perhaps. <laughs> and that's, that's the one they, they took out of the drawer, right? Yeah, right, exactly. And they probably should have mm-hmm. kept it in there. Kept it in the drawer. <laughs> but this one surprised me. Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. That was her yeah. debut? Pardon me? And, and never that anything that... Wow. Yeah, that was surprising to me. And then, of course, unfortunately, sometimes you have authors that pass away after yeah. their book is published and they're not able to make more books, specifically Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. She died a year after her book mm-hmm. was published. Right. And I didn't realize that... That's the same case for the author of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society by Mary Ann Schaefer. She passed away, and that Mm. book was very popular. Yeah, it was. It has a movie, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah, I've seen that around. Yeah. So what were your favorite debuts of 2022? I have a tie, and I I cannot be forced to choose. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You can list a few. I have three. Okay. All right. Well— Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus and Cover Story by Susan Rigetti mm-hmm. are my mm-hmm. are the two I just could not pick between. So those are are my two. What about yours? Yes, I had Cover Story by Susan Rigetti. I figured you'd have it, but I was like, let me just put it here just in case because it was so great. <laughs> also, The Violin Conspiracy by Brendan Slocum and Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt, which I really enjoyed. I loved the character of Marcellus, and it was such a unique story for it to be a debut. Um, and I'm excited. The The other thing I wanted to ask was if there is a debut author where we're waiting for their second book with bated breath, I would have said Brendan Slocombs, but we're getting another book by him already this year. It's called Symphony of Secrets, and I already have an arc of it. So I was really, really delighted when that one came through. Okay. I, I have a debut. I am waiting impatiently. I'm impatiently waiting <laughs> on this author to write again. And that is I Liked My Life by Abby Fabiashi. Came out in 2017. Mm. I mean, Abby, we're waiting really, really excited. We're waiting. Did you read this, Tina? It's no. Uh-uh. About the, about, about the mother who dies and, and narrates the story from above. Mm-mm. Have you brought oh. it to the show? No. This was before, yeah, no, I haven't brought it to the show. No, I, I don't know anything. I could have I could have told you I would have avoided it if I heard that synopsis. Be like, nope. And you would have been like, yep, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's a great mystery, but also just a, a great family story. Yeah, I, 2017. Yeah, that's, that's a long been time. a while. That's been, been a while. I hope, I hope she's working on something, but yeah. You know, I had another one, actually. White Ivy by Susie Yang. Yes, that one's I so good. I would love to read something else by her. So I hope she's also working on giving us another book. Susie, if you're listening, let us Susie, know. Susie, Abby, <laughs> please. I know. I love a good, I love a good sophomore novel, but like, maybe that's another episode. You know, the sophomore novels, like, are there mm. any, you know, which ones came out that were better? I think S.A. Cosby is definitely Blacktop Wasteland would have been you know, a part of his breakout. And then, of course, uh, Razorblade Tears after that. Yeah, I, I, I think it. you hit on a good idea, yeah. Tina. The sophomore yeah. novel that did not slump. Because, you know, a lot of people say the sophomore slump. Sophomore mm-hmm. novel that didn't slump, baby. All right, uh-huh. put it in the books. <laughs> okay, so speaking of sophomore novels that did not slump, wow, what a transition. Everyone, my, my apologies. I actually messed up <laughs> reading for this show, and I'm so mad at myself. I was creating my, you know, little script here this morning and realized that I actually read a sophomore novel. But I'm going to tell you about it because it was awesome. It's Monday's Not Coming by Tiffany D. Jackson. And her debut novel was Allegedly, which blows my mind because Allegedly is, I mean, five stars, incredible. So this one, Monday's Not Coming, is her second book. It came out in 2018 
and allegedly came out in 2017. So good transition right into this book. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is about Monday Charles, and she's a young girl who is missing, and only her best friend Claudia seems to notice. Claudia and Monday are inseparable. They kind of grew up more than friends, almost as sisters. I mean, they had done everything together, but most of the time they were at Claudia's house because Monday came from a very tough home. And so over the summer, Claudia goes to visit her grandma uh, down south and then comes back as like bursting at the seams to see her best friend Monday. And she's not there. She's not answering the phone. And Claudia doesn't have a cell phone yet. So she's like, okay, I guess I'll see her at school. Like, mom, have you seen her? No. So she's like, whatever. I'll just see her at school. The first day of school, Monday's not there. Claudia's like, no, something's up. Then she doesn't show up for the second day or the second week. And Claudia is like, okay, something is wrong. What's going on here? She knows Monday wouldn't just switch schools without telling her and like leave her to the wolves. And there were some rumors going around um, that Claudia has been dealing with. So she's like, no, there's no way in our senior year, right before, actually, they were like eighth graders going into high school. There's no way she's going to leave me alone. Monday's mom is being a little bit cagey about it. And so is Monday's older sister, April. She's like, what is going on? So you've got a little bit of an amateur detective, but it worked in this case because she's, we'll say 14. She's a kid. And like, what else can you do? What if your best friend growing up disappeared? What would you do? So Claudia is asking the question, is digging deeper. And everyone is saying like, huh, no, I can't. I'm sure I've seen her. Yeah, she's been around. But no one can actually say, oh, yeah, I saw her on Wednesday. I spoke to her. So something's happening. And I could not stop reading this. I was so frustrated for Claudia because it reminded me that no one listens to young adults sometimes. Like, they're just like, okay, yeah, you're fine. No, I'm sure she's just busy. I'm sure she's just at her dad's. Oh, she's with her auntie. And, and Claudia's like, no, I know something's wrong. And people were not listening to her. So I started getting really frustrated. But I think the author did a great job with illustrating how it can be that some kids and people slip through the cracks. This does read a lot more YA than some of her other books that I've read, but this still tackles extremely serious topics. I would I would say 16 years or older. It says it's for 13 years, and I'm like, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. And my only critique, I really enjoyed it, my only critique would be sometimes the timelines were a little bit hard to follow. It's like the before, the after, the before, before. And I'm like, huh. So Claudia herself, I'm like, are you... She's just a little bit of an unreliable narrator, but not in a bad way, in more of a I'm a young adult kind of way, and I don't quite understand what the heck is going on. I really appreciated the story that Jackson created. It's very dark. Definitely look up trigger warnings, but I'll tell you, this will like punch you in the gut for sure. I It just cemented my love for this author's writing. She's so very good. And this was Monday's Not Coming by Tiffany D. Jackson. Okay. That sounds good. All right. Funny. This is funny because as we've said, we don't share our books. And my first book is also about uh, a girl that had a best friend who's missing. Oh, (laughs) Which isn't that crazy? Okay. It's Nice Girls by Catherine Dang. And I listened to this on audio. I did enjoy the audio. I thought the narration was good. This is about Mary. Mary narrates the entire story. And in high school, she used to be a nice girl. She was kind of the resident whiz kid of Liberty Lake, Minnesota. She was quiet, not super popular. She ended up getting a scholarship to an Ivy League school. However, three years later, which is when the story begins, Ivy League Mary has gotten kicked out of her Ivy League school the fall of her senior year. So her dad picks her up. She has to return to Minnesota. There is a reason for what happened, but that's a little bit of a mystery. And Mary heads back to Minnesota. She's cynical. She's restless. She feels like a failure, and she doesn't want to tell anyone what happened. So she ends up taking a job at the local grocery store as she tries to kind of get her life under control. She's having a, a little, like there's something a little bit off about Mary, but you don't quite know what. And then one day, a beautiful girl, popular in the area, her name is Olivia, she goes missing. Now, Olivia had been Mary's best friend during their high school years at one point. 
Olivia was a rising social media star and admired by everyone in Liberty Lake, except Mary, because something happened that kind of killed their friendship. So all of these things are happening. And as Mary starts to obsess a little bit over what happened to Olivia, and was there more to Olivia than people knew, she kind of finds out about another girl who disappeared the previous summer, and that was 19-year-old Demaria Jackson. And she was a Black girl whose case was widely dismissed as a runaway case. Mm -hmm. So the question that overrides this story is, what happened to these girls? Who were they really? And who's going to kind of figure it all out, basically? I mean, it's a mystery, but also a psychological thriller. So the interesting thing about this story is the the part that Mary plays. Like I said, Mary narrates this whole thing. I listened to this during an, like a whole day of cleaning. This is a great cleaning book. Like something that if you if you like a popcorn thriller, like where you, if you're doing other things and you want a, an audiobook, I think this could work. Here's what I liked about it. I enjoyed the pacing. I enjoyed the setup. I enjoyed like, like the trying to figure out who are all of these girls exactly and what's possibly going on in this community. I like that the author attempted to explore the fact that there is a great disparity in our criminal justice system, as well as in the media when it comes to attention that is given to missing white girls versus those who are not white. I said attempted to explore because in my opinion, the ball was really dropped on fleshing out the race disparities in this particular story and examining them as part of the bigger dual mystery. And I think that had that been done, that could have provided depth that this story needed. I did like the dual mystery aspect. And as the story went on, I liked that the mystery kept me engaged. However, there was a point where cracks started to form and the plot began to derail. And then it really derailed. The only reason I didn't end up DNFing this was the dual mystery. I wanted to find out what happened to these girls. Um, there was a point in the story when Mary did something that made absolutely no sense at all from a plot standpoint. And then from there, for me, the story went downhill. So really, if you said, okay, what exactly didn't work for you? My answer is the entire bit of amateur sleuthing by Mary hmm. because she wasn't even a smart amateur sleuth. She made really bizarre decisions. She made rash decisions for no logical reason. She was very unlikable. And most importantly, in terms of the plot, Mary had absolutely no motivation that I saw for being interested in trying to find out what happened to the girls. Wow. This does pair so well with Monday's Not Coming because the juxtaposition is Claudia is her best friend. So of course she's obsessed, but it sounds like she was just, this person was well, intervening for like, for, for why? <laughs> for why? Because for they weren't, yeah, they they mm. had at one point been friends, but then they weren't. Oh boy. It, it was just a bit of a mess. Um, had Mary been a journalism, psychology, criminology student, anything, I would have grasped onto that and said, okay, I could see why she was interested in crime per se. And I think that would have given her some credibility, but she wasn't. So I, I don't know why she was interested. For me in particular, as an avid mystery reader, I would like detectives or a smart investigative journalist someone who has some common sense to figure out the mystery, and I don't think that was Mary. The resolution proved to be a bit chaotic, a little bit of a head-scratcher. So needless to say, this was an overall miss for me. However, like I said, I, bin I binged it. Mm -hmm. You know, I binged it in a few hours of cleaning and organizing. So take that for just my opinion, and that was Nice Girls by Katherine Dang. Mm. Good review. Next, 
is my favorite book of the bunch. This book is The Writing Retreat by Julia Bartz. This actually is a debut. I double-checked. <laughs> and this was a book of the month pick for February. So I was uh, so excited for this. And I'm really, really delighted to say, for me, it paid off. It's about Alex. And Alex is down on her luck. She's She's sort of got writer's block. And she's almost given up on her dreams of becoming a published author. And then she gets a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. She gets invited to attend an exclusive month-long writing retreat at the estate of feminist horror writer Rosa Vallo. And then she finds out her former best friend and current rival, Ren, is also attending. But she's like, all right, I'm going to go. I'll make the most of it. It's not going to dampen my spirits. The attendees start to arrive at this very mysterious kind of uh, estate of the author. Rosa then drops a bombshell. They must all complete an entire novel from scratch during the next month. And the one that finishes is going to receive a life-changing seven-figure publishing deal. And so, of course, they're all like, oh my gosh, there's about six other women there. And they're determined to win this impossible contest. Alex decides to buckle down and ignore the strange happenings. Rosa herself is quite the character. And she's like, all right, she's a little weird, a little unorthodox. I'm just going to go with it. Then, of course, things escalate. And she's starting to question, like, what's really going on here? But again, through all of this, she's got to write this novel so she can try and win the money and quit her day job and become a full-time author as she's always wanted. I thought this was such a fun, feminist, queer, gothic mystery. And I truly adored it. It's one of the better thrillers I've read in a while. I've had a lot of good luck with thrillers lately. And this is one of those books that, at least for me, where the plot holds up to the amazing setup. Because I was in, I'm like a writing retreat, enemies, there's, you know, a mysterious circumstance, locked room mystery, I am in it. But I thought it held up. You can't beat the estate. You can't beat the Rosa Vallo of it all. And you get up, you end up getting a pretty high stakes locked room mystery. I personally loved Alex as a character, flaws and all. She's not perfect, but I enjoyed getting to know her. And I was on the edge of my seat trying to figure out what all was going to happen. There was a diverse cast of characters. And while some of the plot points were totally over the top, I didn't care. If you like books about writing, locked room mysteries, or stories within stories, I think you'll dig this one. And I cannot wait for more by the author. This was The Writing Retreat by Julia Bartz. Oh, yes. Okay. You've got me intrigued. I'm gonna, I don't know how I'm going to find time to read that and the Rebecca Mackay. <sighs> Go for this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. My next book is my winner, winner for today, I guess, if I'm, if I'm ranking all my books for today. This one I loved. It's Mother in the Dark by Kayla Maori. And this is a fairly short novel about family secrets and a volatile relationship between a mother and her daughters. This is about a family. You have Anna and her sisters, and they are growing up in a working-class Boston family. They are an Italian-American family, and they live in a pretty close-knit neighborhood. For the most part, their childhood is pretty comfortable. They don't have everything, but they're not necessarily wanting for a lot. The sisters are devoted to their mother, as their father is often out working. He kind of works for long hours, Anna is the oldest sister. And then, so Anna has sisters, Leah and Sophie. Now, what ends up happening is they're very close with their mom. However, they often had to walk on eggshells around her because of her mercurial nature. Sometimes she was loving to the girls, but sometimes she was neglectful and emotionally abusive. And then one day their dad comes home and he has a job opportunity which ends up leading to a move for the family. And after that, Anna's mother is suddenly much more volatile and the family dynamics in the home continue to shift. Her daughters are trapped with her in a new house. They're isolated and they must do everything they can to keep their mother from unraveling. What's interesting about this story is it's actually told entirely from Anna's perspective but it's told in alternating timelines. It's told between childhood and a single weekend in her 20s in which she receives a call from one of her sisters that threatens to destroy 
her own carefully constructed new life in New York. And this story is really, truly about whether we can ever really go back home when the idea of home was so unstable and whether you can ever really escape your past and make peace with your family. All right, this story is dysfunctional. I should say this family is dysfunctional with a capital D. But there are there are times that they loved each other. This is a really interesting story because the overall tone of the story is dark. There is a darkness to the entire story between their childhood and present day when Anna is an adult. The darkness kind of permeates because there is a talk there's talk of mental illness. There is childhood neglect that could be significant at times, and there is an unraveling of a family. But the darkness in the story is also interspersed with moments of humor, which was really interesting choice by the author. I haven't felt so torn about my feelings about characters in a long time. I'm not sure that I quite liked Anna as an adult, However, I felt tremendous sympathy for her because of her childhood. I actually loved going back to the childhood. And usually, sometimes one perspective doesn't work for me, but I absolutely loved seeing how, like, what happened with the family that led up to the present day. The way the author chose to tell the story was brilliant. It allowed me an up close and intimate look at how Anna and her sisters grew up. It allowed me to connect with all of them. And the story wasn't all darkness. There were moments that I found the girl's mother to actually be pretty witty and funny. And I listened to this in just a few hours. It's pretty short. For me, it was a binge listen. I listened on a a recent day that I was traveling and I found that the pace was very fast. I was invested in finding out not only what had happened in the past to the girls, but what would happen in the present day. Would there be a reckoning? Would there be forgiveness? I needed to know, and I hope I am intrigued you enough that you will want to know. And I do want to thank Sarah from Fiction Matters for her review of this. In her review, she mentioned it might be for fans of Signal Fires, And that's all I needed to know. Mm -hmm. And I would agree with that. Uh, If you like signal fires, I think that you're going to like this. And I have another, I don't know if I'm going to call it a comp, but something came to my mind when I finished this book. And I want to mention it. So so stay with me because it's going to seem an odd comp. But This Is Where I Leave You by Jonathan Tropper came to my mind when I finished this book. If you liked that book, I think you can think of this book as a much darker, but way less funny, this is where I leave you. It's that, it's, it's that person who is an adult who has to return home or, or like re-engage with their family that, and their family can be quite dysfunctional. That's how I felt uh, about this story. It is Mother in the Dark by Kayla Maiori. Mm, good one. Yes, I definitely had that on my radar. I'm glad to hear you liked it. Yes, I loved it. All righty. Well, I have a shelf edition, and this book is called The Eden Test by Adam Sternberg. And Adam Sternberg is the author of The Blinds, which I really enjoyed. We did one of our very first buddy reads way back in the early days of Book Talk, et cetera, about this one. And this book's tagline is Seven Days, Seven Questions Forever Changed. Daisy and Craig's marriage is in serious trouble. That's why Daisy has signed up for the Eden Test, a week-long getaway for couples in need of a fresh start. And even though she's struggling to salvage her marriage, it seems that Craig plans to leave her for another woman. In fact, his bag's already packed. Long before he arrives to meet Daisy in this remote cabin in the woods in upstate New York, Craig, why do you go to this? I can't imagine what you're thinking, but okay, I'll stay (laughs) with it. And... At first, their week away is marked by solitude, connection, and natural beauty, and only a few hostile locals. But what Craig doesn't know is that Daisy, a slyly talented actress, has her own secrets, including a burner phone she's been using to send mysterious texts. And not to mention the Eden test itself, which poses a searing new question to the couple's every day. 
each more explosive than the last. Their marriage was never perfect, but now the lies and revelations are piling up as the week becomes much more than they bargained for. How far are they willing to go? Stop it. That is so good. (laughs) I'm really excited. He is a pretty good... I want to say... I probably shouldn't say this, but I think The Blinds was his debut, and I'll I'll look it up. But I loved that book. It was very uh, almost speculative, and he did a really good job with it. So I'm excited about this. It's The Eden Test by Adam Sternberg. Okay. All right. My shelf edition is a debut, and it is Speak of the Devil by Rose Wilding. Comes out June 13th. So get this on your summer beach bag TBRs. This book is set on New Year's Eve, 1999. And you have seven women, and they're all gathered in a hotel room at midnight. And guess what sits in front of them in the center of the floor? A dead body. A man's head. Oh, okay. <laughs> How's that for a setup? All okay. Right. <laughs> They all had motive to kill Jamie Spellman. They all swear they didn't. But in order to protect one another, they have to find out who did. So the story is set against the ticking clock of a murder investigation, and each woman's secret is brought to light as the connections between them converge to reveal a killer. Uh, That's really... All I need to know, I'm sure a lot of us are going to be excited about this one. It's Speak of the Devil by Rose Wilding. Oh, yeah. That's a great, I mean, not a great setup, but interesting. Sounds intriguing. That that gets your attention, right? It gets your attention. Oh, that's it. That's it for today. We thank you for spending a part of your day with us. Links to all the books mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can help us by following us wherever you listen and by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get our show out to new listeners and grows our audience. And don't forget, if you would like access to exclusive bonus content, you can join us for $5 a month on patreon.com slash booktalk, etc. Feedback and questions about the show can be sent to booktalketc at gmail.com. You can also connect with us both at booktalketc on Instagram, Tina at TBR, etc., and me, Renee, at It's Book Talk. Talk to you next week. In the meantime, remember, everything's better with books. The Blinds was not Adam Sternberg's debut. I probably should stop saying that. My fatal flaw is that whenever I discover a new novelist, I'm like, oh, this is their debut. (laughs) No, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Anyway.